Good morning, church. So if I need a, a rousing applause, I just have to mention rain. <laughs> yes, we have been praying, and I am praying. And I don't like rain, actually, but I'm really looking forward to the rain that we're going to be getting this next week, uh, uh, looking at what the alternative has been. You know, I, I grew up in... Uh, small town in Saskatchewan, you know, town of about 300 people, and uh, had two older brothers, two younger sisters, and we lived on a farm for a lot of my young years, and, and, and we had a lot of fun. You know, I was probably, though, one of those kids that every other mother said, I'm glad that one's not mine. <laughs> and because uh, when, when we would have fun, we were often very competitive with each other, and, and usually we went just a little bit too far with most of the things that we did. I remember one time my brother, who was two years older than myself, and we didn't have paintball and Nerf guns and things like that back then. We had pellet guns, and so we were playing commando one day, and that ended quite quickly when I shot him in the ribs. Uh, now, it was only a little welt, but... Uh, <laughs> Uh, that kind of ended that game. I remember we were uh, quite adventurous, and one way day we decided that we were going to try to fly, and so we cut out some of my dad's plywood into small squares, and we tied it to our arms with baler twine and flapped around and didn't get much traction out of that, so we thought, well, let's try the roof. And, and so we climbed up on the roof and proceeded to jump off the roof with plywood tied to our arms. <laughs> that didn't end very well. Um, I do remember that we, we had a lot of fun in summer times. We would often go to the big city, Saskatoon, and had cousins that lived there, and they were all urban and everything, and they knew all the really good stuff. And we would have a lot of... We, we could do a lot of things that we couldn't do on the farm. And one that I really loved doing was going swimming, and we would go to the outdoor swimming pools. And uh, I remember that uh, even in the swimming pool, it was a competition, you know, who could push things the farthest. And so our, our competition that day was, was a competition who could get the furthest into the deep end. And, you know, the pools, they sloped off, and then they really went down into the deep end. And so we would kind of tiptoe backward as the water got higher and higher on our face and our nose, and then we'd be bobbing up and down on, our, on the balls of our feet, and then I would back up just far enough so I had one big toe with some traction on the edge and my nose above the water, and, and then I slipped. <laughs> my toe let go, and I went backwards. I lost my traction. I started flailing. We couldn't swim. Like, none of us could swim a stroke. <laughs> and, and so I was underwater. I was swallowing water, and I was panicking. And, and suddenly from behind me, uh, I just felt a hand, and somebody just pushed me forward about a foot and a half back onto the, onto the more level part of the swimming pool. And I coughed and sputtered. Uh, no, I did not turn around and say thank you. I was too embarrassed. And so instead, what I did was I... I just walked into the showers, and I stood in the showers until the family decided to leave. And then later that evening, my uncle came to me, and he said, uh, Sarah, did anything happen in the pool today? I just looked at him and said, no. <laughs> and uh, so I don't know whether you're risk takers, whether you like living life kind of at the edge or too far 
over the edge like I have sometimes lived my life, but, but kind of looking today at, at, at our scripture passage, this is a passage, it's a judgment text, and it's actually part of a group of texts where Jesus in, is in direct confrontation with the religious leaders who basically were plotting to kill him, and, and, and it was... It's a text about going too far, you know. And my question for you this morning is going to be, you know, have you ever been at a place where you felt like, like maybe you have gone too far? And whether it's decisions that you've made in your lifetime, whether you stretched yourself financially, but those are all important things. But I'm actually talking about spiritually, about our relationship with the Lord, and and you know kind of between ourselves and God as to whether we're going to kind of walk and live for ourselves or if we're going to follow him. And so, you know, have you ever, you know, have you ever been in a position where maybe you, you've made a choice and, and turning back, you've just felt a lot of remorse and you felt like, oh boy, like this one's too far. I don't think there's any coming back on this one. Or you might have asked yourself, I don't know if Jesus will forgive me this time. You know, maybe you've lost your grip. You're, you're sliding in deeper. Maybe you're flailing around. Maybe your toe is just, just hanging on to the edge. I don't know where you are today, but uh, today, as I said, we're going to talk about a, a judgment text. But in the middle of this text, there's a story of hope. And there's a story of invitation. It's the parable of the tenants is how it's, it's titled in my Bible. And it's connected to a number of other stories that we've been covering as we've been going through the book of Mark in our series Remarkable. And so a couple of weeks ago, Michael preached on the cursing of the fig tree and the cleansing of the temple and how Jesus was really judging the fruitlessness of the religious system of his day. And then last week, Pastor Andrew spoke about uh, the, the confrontation on the authority of Jesus. And uh, his, his, kind of his theme as he walked through was, you know, we can ask good questions, and questions are, questions are okay, but questions that confront the authority of Jesus and don't recognize the authority of Jesus as the text he was covering can be pretty serious. And so we get to the parable of the tenants and the destruction of the religious leaders. And, and we begin by seeing uh, as, as Jesus starts this parable, he actually begins the parable talking about the hope of God it starts like this. It says, Jesus then began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard. He put a wall around it, dug a pit for the wine press. He built a watchtower. And then he rented the vineyard to some farmers and moved to another place. The place where Jesus was teaching from uh, after Jesus had his triumphal entry into, into Jerusalem a couple of chapters earlier in the book of Mark, he would go into the city of Jerusalem, into the temple, and teach during the daytime, and then he went out and he was staying just outside of town for the nights in preparation for what he knew was coming up ahead with his, uh, 
with, with his crucifixion that was going to be ahead of him. And uh, this temple where he was teaching, it was just a magnificent structure. Uh, Herod had basically had built the temple. Like, Herod was not a good guy. Herod was an evil guy. But he built this temple basically in order to win the agreement and the uh, compliance of the Jewish people. It was, it was the center of Jewish life. It was the center of Jewish worship. And in fact, the porch or the colonnade on which Jesus probably would have been speaking, uh, it was behind him were these massive arches and massive pillars and beams. And they were actually carved with intricate grapevines, just these luscious grapes and grapevines. It was just like a thing of beauty, this place. And it was a perfect backdrop for this parable that Jesus taught. But in reality as well, for Jesus, where he was teaching was he was teaching right in the mouth of the lion. And he knew who he was speaking to. He knew he was where he was. He knew why he was there. And so the backdrop of this, of this parable, uh, he, he talked about absentee landowners. And that, actually the social situation in Jewish Galilee in the first century was that there would be rich people and they would build uh, large vineyard estates, winery estates, and then they would lease it out to peasants or to, to farmers. And, and so the peasants and the farmers would do the work and they would keep about two-thirds of the share and the landlord would keep about one-third of the share. So the people that were listening to this parable knew very well kind of what that, that uh, crop share relationship between the tenant and the owner should have been. And so as we see, the parable begins with Jesus saying, look, he took some time, he took care, he carefully planted the vineyard, he put up a watchtower so that he, uh, he, he could have security, so that there's nobody coming in, being able to, uh, to either destroy it or to steal. Uh, he prepared for the workers, he put a wall around it for protection, and so he took his time and he, and he carefully prepared this vineyard to be a fruitful place where he was going to receive a good income. And as he was doing that, Jesus was actually describing the plan that God has had. He was describing God's plan. And if you have ever read through the Old Testament, I, I began doing that a number of years ago. I... I for many years, I would, you know, read little bits and chunks of Scripture all over the place, but quite a few years ago, I began kind of doing a, an annual kind of a read through the Bible. My annual read through the Bible takes usually two and a half years, uh, but uh, I, I, I do read through it, you know, through the Bible, either chronologically or kind of consen cons consecutively through. And when I began doing that, I began to actually see this big picture of what God was doing. And it began right in the very beginning, and it was, a, it was a good plan. Like God's plan for all of us, starting with his decision to create us, was to have a loving, close, intimate relationship with him. You know, do you ever wonder what it must have been like for Adam and Eve, the first two people who were created? And, 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 and in starting out, you know, every evening after they were done and they would be, you know, 
working in the, in, in the garden and, and doing whatever the things that they were to do. And then it, scripture said, and then in the cool of the evening, God would come down and he would meet with them. And, and he would visit with them. And, and he would check out and ask them, you know, so how was today? What did you do? What did you enjoy today? You know, they were right there in his presence, connected right there with his thoughts and, and, and with his love for them. You know, I, and I remember, I remember a couple of years ago, one of our staff had just gone through and completed the interview that takes place when somebody is becoming licensed to become a licensed worker in our Alliance District. And uh, one of the questions that's often asked during the interview is if you were to be walking somebody through the pathway or the plan of salvation, of how to lead somebody into faith, you know, what scripture references would you use? How would you walk that through? And, you know, I've used a number of different methods, and that day I was just talking, well, I said, you know, I often use the Romans road, which, you know, if you use that one, then it often starts at Romans chapter 3, verse 23, where it says, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Like, I, boom, clear, you know? And, and in our conversation, she said, yeah, she said, I, I kind of do it a different way. She said, I actually begin right at the very beginning in Genesis and, and, and she shared that, uh, she said, the way I begin is saying, at the very beginning, God created us to love us and to be loved by him. I thought, man, that's good. I said to her, I'm stealing that. <laughs> I'm going to use that from now on. You know, because that's really what the story is about. It's not, yeah, sin is part of the story. But the story began in a good place with God, creating us to be loved and to love us. And then it didn't take very long, Adam and Eve sinned, and sin entered our world. But you know, almost immediately after the sin, when God was talking to them about the consequences of what was now going to be happened, because there had been a seismic cosmic shift in, in everything, and his plan began immediately, and he actually said to the serpent, uh, he, was, he, said to, he said, one day Jesus, I put that in, one day he will crush your head and you will bruise his heel. And so God already began right there with his plan of redemption, of restoration, and of restoring us into relationship with, his, with him that was going to end with Jesus. And so not only did God have a good plan, but God has always desired to be good and to have us experience his very best good ourselves. Now, Paul says in Romans chapter 8, verse 28, he said, and we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. And you might be thinking, well, how come so many difficult things come my way? Or... How come God doesn't always give me the things that I ask for? Well, probably a quick answer to that is, well, a lot of times our, 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 our desires and our asks are pretty short-sighted, pretty self-centered. And God will answer our, 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 our prayers in many different ways. But you know what? God wants us first and foremost 
to be fully surrendered in our will, to trust that he will be doing his very best for us, even though there might be very difficult times and circumstances in our lives. I don't remember which author I read this from, but it's stuck with me for many years, and that is that God is not nearly as concerned about our immediate comfort as he is about who we are becoming. You know, God is much more concerned about the big picture and about who we are becoming and how we're going to fit and be productive in his plan for what he is about doing. And so, you know, if you want to get more connected in with God, uh, I, I just encourage you to spend some time with him. Not time just asking for stuff, but time to ask him about what he's doing. And to ask him where he'd love to have us join him in what he's doing. And so he began with a good plan. And then as the story rolls on, we see the ongoing and the continuing kindness of God. It says at harvest time, he sent a servant to the tenants to collect from them some of the fruit from the vineyard, but they seized him, beat him, and sent him away empty-handed. And then he sent another servant to them, and they struck this man on the head, and they treated him shamefully. He sent still another, and that one they killed. He sent many others. Some of them they beat, others they killed. He had one left to send, a son whom he loved. He sent him last of all, saying... They will respect my son. But the tenant said to one another, this is the heir, come, let's kill him and the inheritance will be ours. So they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. Just a couple of points I wanted to connect with that, with, with these verses. The first one is this, and that is, in his kindness, God will let us choose. And he will let us choose him or he will let us to choose ourselves. And these verses are kind of a commentary on the persistent disobedience and the rebellion of Israel through the history of the nation. The story of the nation is one of consistently following after their own interests, worshiping other gods, of wanting things that God had not intended for them. And God continued to invite them back into his plan and sometimes he did it through warnings and sometimes he did it through circumstances but he also did it through many prophets and if you look in the old testament there are uh, there are uh, probably between 15 and 18 prophets just listed in the old testament people whom god sent to warn but also to invite the nation back into obedience to god and it says, you know, that some of them were treated terribly badly. In fact, some of them, the nations actually killed some of the prophets. And then in his goodness, we see that God took the final and biggest step of love of all. He sent his son. So we see God consistently giving people and giving us freedom to choose and follow him or the freedom to walk away and choose to follow our own, our own path. And even in this freedom, even when we choose not to follow him, God, secondly, continues to faithfully 
pursue us in his kindness. And we can see here that God faithfully and relentlessly offered kindness and offered restoration and offered redemption of his people back to him. And in in our own lives, God will continue to offer and offer us the opportunity to enter back into relationship with him. Even as wayward as we can be, he'll continue to to offer that, uh, that invitation back. I, there's one of the parables that Jesus told me. It's one of my favorite parables, and, uh, and it teaches about the faithfulness and, and the, the, the lovingness of God. It, in our Bibles, it's probably titled The Prodigal Son. When I was going to seminary, my professor, in a book that he wrote, renamed this parable. He called it uh, Two Sons and a, and a Running Father. And the story, if you've read it, I'm not going to read it. But in the story, the youngest son was, was very full of himself and very arrogant. And so he went to his father, who was a very wealthy man, and he said, I demand my share of the inheritance. And his father gave it to him. And then he proceeded to leave, and he squandered everything. He spent it all, wasted it all, within a short period of time. In fact, it didn't take very long, and he found himself starving, homeless, without any food to eat. He hired himself out to the owner of a pig farm, and he was sitting in the pig pen and feeding pods to the, to the, to the pigs, thinking to himself, you know, these pigs have more to eat than I do, you know. Then he thought, you know what, even the lowest servant in my father's home in his household, even the lowest of the lowest of the servants would have it better than I do. And so he decided that he would go back never expecting and knowing he would never be be accepted back, but if hopefully he could be accepted just as a lowly servant. And in this parable, and and, uh, my professor, author, who, who wrote this book, he shared that in the time, uh, in the culture, in the society where this story takes place, affluent, wealthy, respected people, men in the society, there were things that they could do and they had lots of freedom to do, but there were many things that you would never do because it would just be far below you and would be just too humiliating. And so there were things that they would never do. And in this parable, one of the things that's so striking is that what everything that the father did, all of it broke the convention. It all broke the rules. And so, as he was, as, as he was uh, considering, well, how am I going to approach the loss of my son? The rule said, you just... You know, basically, you curse him, you treat him as though he's dead, he is dead to you, he's gone. And what did the father do? You know, he waited. He watched every day. He waited to see if his son would come back. And then the one day when he saw him coming over the brow of the hill, uh, the, the story says that he actually wore robes. He actually pulled up his robe, which you don't do as a wealthy, influential, respected person. And the next thing he did was even worse. He ran towards his son. 
You don't do that either. And then he celebrated. He celebrated the return of his lost son. He broke all of the rules for that son. And he didn't even know yet at that time whether his son was coming back in repentance or maybe more rebellion. He broke all the rules. But he had a second son. And for his other son, he left the party and he found his son. He said, son, come and celebrate with us. Your brother who was lost is back. His brother was angry, furious. He said, I've never asked for anything in my life. I've always been the obedient one. I've always done everything that I was supposed to do. And now this son comes back and you just put out the whole spread for him. And he refused to come. And his father said, but son, everything that I have is yours. All that I have is yours. And he invited him to the party. And the son wouldn't come. And I'm sure that after the story ends, if Jesus were to continue, he would have said that that father continued to go back and invite his son over and over again. So one picture is, of, is one of repentance and redemption. The other one is of rejection and refusal. I remember when my two older brothers left home. They left home in anger and in rebellion. The church that we were a part of at the time was a very religious church. And my parents were advised that they should just kind of, we, we didn't use the word shun, but I think you know what I mean, that they should just, you know, if they come back groveling, well then hear them out, but until then just, you know, let them go. And I remember in a conversation that I once had with my dad, we were talking together and dad said, you know, mom and I decided that we would love. And, and that's what they did. They just loved. And it took 10 years for the relationships to warm and then to heal. And eventually both of my brothers De developed wonderful relationships with our parents. And both of them said, the reason we came back was because mom and dad loved and they, couldn't, they wouldn't quit loving. You know, one author wrote about God in this story of the tenant and he said he kept accepting repeated and repeated rejections of his ownership. But instead of turning back to the world, God continued sending servant after servant Rebuffs, insults, beatings did not stop him. And finally, he sent his son. Charles Spurgeon once said uh, this about Jesus and about God. If you reject him, he answers you with tears. If you wound him, he bleeds out cleansing. If you kill him, he dies to redeem. If you bury him, he rises again to bring resurrection. Jesus is love manifest. So I've got a couple questions kind of along the way here. Do you see yourself anywhere in this story of the tenants? Does any part of the story kind of resemble your life or your relationship with God?
So that's one side of it. The other side of it is, what do you think God thinks about you right now? What do you think God thinks about you? I know in, in my younger years, all the way up to about age 45, I really, really struggled hard because I always thought that God was angry at me. And I found it very, very difficult to accept the concept of forgiveness. Um, it was part of, part of the experiences of what I'd grown up with in life, but, but I, I always had a picture of God as a judge, never as a father who had his arms wrapped around me. And some of our courses that we, that we host here at the church, Set Free and Soul Care, you know, we've seen so many people come through who've had a very, a very distorted understanding of who God is and how he feels about us. And I can tell you, you know, it doesn't matter what you think of yourself or what you think of God, that God loves you. And that God stands hands, arms open wide, ready to wrap us in his arms whenever we choose to walk into them. So whether you do it while I'm talking or whether you do it maybe later on today, maybe just ask God to tell you what he thinks about you right now. Maybe ask Jesus as well, is there something that you've been telling yourself that the enemy has actually been speaking into your mind that's not really true at all. Because the truth is, our Father loves us. And so, sometime during the day, I hope you can take some time just to think through those questions. So next, Jesus actually continues with some pretty harsh words. He's, he continued on, he said, what then will the owner of the vineyard do? he will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. Now, clearly, Jesus was speaking directly to the religious leaders in front of him who were already plotting how they were going to take him out and kill him. He knew exactly what was in their hearts, and he knew that they were going to carry out and succeed in their plan. Jesus knew that the enemy tactics were clear. And the enemy's tactics were to, to destroy and to kill him. And they thought that by doing that, they were going to rid themselves of this incessant burr, of this annoying person, of this individual who challenged everything that they taught in their religious structure, who challenged it with things like Love and forgiveness. And, and so Jesus' statement here is it's really clear, it's really direct. The consequences were really crystal clear. And yet, you know what? They still had a choice. They could have turned around, they could have repented, they could have asked for forgiveness. 
And I know we read stories like the book of Mark, we read it from the perspective of history, looking at we know what happened, we know how the story went, we know that they went ahead and they did crucify him, they did kill him. But I'd like to say that even in the midst of this incredibly harsh judgmental station, uh, statement, that there was still room for them to choose. But they chose the path that would devastate and destroy them. And sin is devastating. I do want to just take a, a couple minutes just to park on, on the reality that when we sin, there is a cost and there is a price that we pay. And, and, and we don't need to because we don't need to choose to sin. One, a couple of them. One is, is the, the price of separation. When we choose to live in sin and walk in sin, we lose intimacy with the Father, we lose intimacy with, with Jesus, and we lose intimacy with the Holy Spirit. We also lose the intimacy of relationship with each other in the body of Christ. One of the second devastations of sin is, is that there is a loss of our identity, of our true identity. Because with sin comes real guilt, and with guilt often comes very deep shame. And sometimes we hold on to shame that we shouldn't hold on to. But shame is part of, of the lost identity. We lose peace. God intended us to live lives that were filled with his presence and his peace. And in our twisted identity, we also become very self-preserving and self-defensive. A third, a third form of damage is that we give the enemy grounds. Our enemy is always looking for access points into our lives. And every time that we choose to step away from God in sin, we step into the, relief, into the reach and into the control of the enemy. And each place in our souls that we keep surrendered, or sorry, keep from surrender to the Father, we give the enemy grounds to claim that territory and hang on to it. And Paul gives a very stern warning. He says in Ephesians chapter 4, do not give the devil a foothold. And then finally, if we continue, sin does progress to death. James chapter 1, he writes, when tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me, for God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when full grown, gives birth to death. Now, many of us have sinned and we haven't died right there but what happens is sin on top of sin on top of sin begins to move us in a progression of momentum in the direction of death and that is the end result of where sin takes us so a couple questions this morning what direction are my choices taking me what directions are my choices taking me And the second question is, is this choice that I am making, is it worth the long-term cost and loss that I'm going to experience? Sometimes I just go ahead straight into my own willful decisions. But sometimes when I ask these questions of myself, it really causes me to stop and say, whoa, I remember the last time. 
it wasn't good. I think that's the Holy Spirit speaking to me. And then lastly, I want to close with the price of our sin. The price of our sin is that we have a limitless Savior. Jesus' capacity is absolutely limitless. He went on and he said, haven't you read this passage in Scripture? The stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Then it says of the Pharisees, then they looked for a way to arrest him because they knew he had spoken the parable against them. But they were afraid of the crowd, so they left him and went away. Jesus' statement about the capstone comes out of Psalms chapter 118, verse 22. And again, like I said, he was probably standing in front of these massive archways behind him that held up the, uh, the beams of this massive temple. And, and the Romans had actually, had actually, they didn't invent, but they had actually uh, perfected an engineering wonder called the arch. And the arch basically was stones that came up and then they came around to the top. And in the very center of the top of the archway would be a very central, very pivotal stone. They called it the capstone. And when that stone was dropped into place, that archway would be able to support incredible weight. But without that capstone in place, the archway was useless. In fact, it wouldn't even hold up its own weight. And so the capstone was an absolutely critical stone for the construction of these buildings that they built. And, and people knew exactly what a capstone meant. And, and, then, and Jesus said, the stone that you've rejected, me, has become the very capstone of God's plan. You know, and Jesus knew he, Jesus already knew that three days from where he was standing, he was going to be hanging on a cross and he was going to die and they were going to think that they had destroyed him, that they had won. And, and he is saying, guys, you're going to reject me, but I am going to be the one that begins something absolutely new something absolutely profound. Jesus knew that in about 30 short years, the Roman Empire was going to completely destroy the temple in which he stood. But the little group of followers of believers who had followed Jesus all the way to the cross and through to his resurrection, they were going to become an unstoppable force with him at the very center. He says that the stone that was rejected, it wasn't good enough for you guys. He said that stone is going to become a movement that will change the world. Jesus' capacity is limitless. I'm going to close with just reading a couple of verses from Colossians chapter 1 and 2. Paul said this, he said, For God was pleased to have all of his fullness well in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins 
having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us, he has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and the authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Jesus is completely capable. So you know what, friends? It does not matter if you feel like you got a little sin that you maybe should take care of. It doesn't matter if you feel like I've completely lost my footing and I'm sliding into a bad place. It does not matter if you're feeling like, you know what, I think I've, I've taken too far, too many steps beyond. I don't think that there's any hope or forgiveness for me. Jesus is completely capable. He's capable and he's willing. So we're going to transition into our communion time. But as we do, I just want to kind of maybe give you one more couple of questions for thought. And as we're taking our communion, we're going to be coming up to the front and, and taking it. I'll give you some instructions in a couple of minutes. But, but I want you to, if you have the time after you've taken it, and as you're sitting, and the worship team is going to be singing a couple of songs with us, and you can take whatever posture that you want after the communion, um, whether it's one of prayer, whether it's one of worshiping and singing, but I want you to maybe think about, maybe ask these couple of questions. You know, the first thing is, because, you know, this is what communion is all about, is it's all about remembering and thanking Jesus. And so would you take some time just to say thank you? Thank you for fully covering our sin. Thank you for washing it all away. Thank you for restoring our lives completely. And secondly, in your response, maybe just to think through or even to ask Jesus, you know, are there some areas of unsubmitted or unrepented sin that you want release from or freedom from today? And if some of those things come to your mind, or maybe if they don't, maybe just maybe even ask Jesus if he would help you to, to name them, to identify them, and to own them. And then in his, in his name, just repent of them. And then thirdly, would you receive Jesus' life-giving presence and ask the Holy Spirit to fill those places into which Jesus has just brought freedom into your life? Because that's what he wants to do. He wants to take those broken, hidden, painful, secret places of our lives have us release them to him and then fill them with his life and with his presence.